Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of, of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. In chapter six, the theme of the chapter was opportunity. In chapter seven, the theme is the power and the preaching of the servant. In chapter seven, Mark asks and answers two important questions. Do the Gentiles defile the Jews in verses one through twenty three? And are the Gentiles less important to God than the Jews in verses twenty four through twenty seven? The servant will rebuke his accusers about tradition in verses 1 through 13, and then reassure the disciples about truth in verses 14 through 23. The servant will restore a daughter in order to teach a lesson about trust in verses 24 through 30. And then the servant will return to the Decapolis, which is this large Gentile population, in order to provide a much needed testimony in verses 31 through 37. So the passage begins with a reason to accuse the disciples of Jesus in verses 1 through 5, and then will continue with a rebuke by Jesus to those accusers in verses 6 through 13. In verses 1 through 13, Jesus will expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And then in verses 14 through 23, he will expose the hearts of the religious leaders. And so in this passage, the religious leaders accuse the disciples of unclean and impure behavior. Jesus responds to the religious leaders accusation with one of his own man's traditions and not God's truth were controlling their lives. The religious leaders were willing to disobey God's word and they were willing to disobey God's truth. And they were willing to rob their own parents of help by hiding behind religious pretense and religious traditions. Now, you may come here and you may think, well, I'm not deeply concerned about the answers to those questions. I'm not really concerned about whether the Gentiles uh, defile the Jews or whether or not the Gentiles are less important to God than the Jews. But are you concerned about what defiles the human heart and what 
delights the heart of God. That should be something that you are concerned about. By the way, what controls your life? What are you controlled by? Are you controlled by sin? Are you controlled by pleasure? Are you controlled by the Spirit of God? Are you controlled by the Word of God? Are you controlled by religion? Or are you controlled by a relationship with the Lord? It's interesting. I heard someone say, we Baptists don't believe in tradition. It's contrary to our historic position. That's what I did. I laughed. What was interesting is the person saying it didn't think it was funny. But his tradition became... We have no tradition. You may not call it tradition in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 13. You might call it custom. You might call it habit. It may manifest itself in how open or closed you are to change. Samuel Johnson said, habits are chains that are too small to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. Jesus Claims to set the captive free. And there's a reason why Jesus makes that claim. Because the Bible's repeated testimony is that human beings are in bondage to sin. And they're subject to slavery because of sin. But sometimes culture and tradition blind us to the truth in God's word. And also the truth in God's heart. The commandments of Moses in the first century had become hidden in this man-made forest of human traditions that not only kept people from hearing the word of God and obeying the word of God, but literally turning from God. And so... The accusation comes in verse 1. The accusation against Jesus. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the seat of authority. Jerusalem is where Judaism's capital was. And so there's an official delegation. They come from J Jerusalem for one specific purpose, to check Jesus out. And by the way, not all scribes were Pharisees, and not all Pharisees were scribes, but some scribes were Pharisees, and some Pharisees were scribes. The word scribe is grammatus, grammatus. Some of you are going to be familiar with that word because you're familiar with the word grammar. The word Grammarian or grammar has descended from this Greek word, which meant to investigate, evaluate the writing. And so the scribe's job was to take the law of God, illustrate it and apply it in local circumstances. The scribes were the original Bible answer men of the first century. It was their job to know the scripture. It was their job to interpret the scripture. It was their job to apply it in the very Day in and day out reality of life. And by the way, the Bible gives us examples of good scribes and bad scribes in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, and Matthew chapter 8, verse 19. So this delegation comes from Jerusalem to check out the radical rabbi. See what he's doing. In the ancient world of the first century, when people would ask the question, well, what does the law of God mean to me? Or how do I apply the law of God in this specific circumstance? It was the job of the scribe to provide insight and interpretation and application. And so what they would do is they would look at the passage, then they would look at the precepts. That precepts would form a tradition. Those traditions were intended to be interpretations of the law. And then the application of the law to specific circumstances. But then the interpretations required interpretations. In other words, the law would say, don't work. Well, what do you mean by work? Don't carry a burden. How heavy is a burden? Well, they came to the conclusion that if it, was, if it weighed more than two dried figs, it was a burden. And so they began to make up things. 
pretty soon there was a considerable distance between the interpretation and the original commandment. But the law of God and the word of God wasn't silent. It didn't sit in some corner of the worldview in a way that was impossible to comprehend or obey. And so Jesus comes. G. Campbell Morgan writes, the way in which our Lord dealt with them is singularly arresting in its anger and satire and directness and scorn. And in that careful explanation of the meaning of his method, which he will subsequently give to his disciples, unquote. In verse two, it says, now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. The issue isn't hygiene. The issue isn't like your grandma or your mom going, wash up before dinner. That's not what's happening here. How do the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, see the world and see God? How does Jesus see the world and see God? For the religious leaders, a right relationship with God included a very exact and precise observance of the commands of God and the traditions that grew around those commands for Jesus. His was a simple obedience to the command. The religious leaders were shocked by the disregard of his disciples in failing to observe their cherished traditions. And Jesus was shocked by the religious leaders, callous disregard of the word of God and the character of God and the will of God. My friend H. Wayne House points out, that criticism comes so much easier than encouragement. He writes, quote, counselors say that people, especially children, need encouragement over criticism on, a, on like an eight to one ratio. And so you encourage the child seven times and discourage the, the child one time. In Mark chapter seven, verse three, look what it says. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. The word tradition is para, dosis. Para means to come alongside of. Thayer, the Greek scholar, says this is the traditional Jewish law or, quote, the body of precepts, especially ritual, which in the opinion of the later Jews were orally delivered by Moses and orally transmitted in unbroken succession to subsequent generations, which precepts both illustrating and expanding the written law to be obeyed with equal reverence. In other words, the Jews believed that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but then Moses delivered the oral tradition, which went from generation to generation to generation, and both required obedience and submission. And when they were talking about washing their hands, there was a particular way that you would wash. You see, if you came in contact with anything that was unclean, your hands became defiled. And so there was a specific amount of water that you would have to use. It's the amount of water that you would use to fill up the cup of an egg or the, the shell of an egg. And so what you do is you begin with your left hand and you pour the water and the water has to drip from the top of your fingers to the middle of your wrist. And then you dry the hand because of the moment that the water comes in contact with your hand, it too is defiled. And so you would take your other hand with the fist in order to dry your hand. And then with this hand, you would pour the water on this hand. And if for some reason, some crazy Gentile came up to you and, ha ha, you're defiled again, the, the whole thing was worthless. Because you just caught spiritual cooties. And spiritual cooties would infect you. And in verse four, it says, because now remember who Mark is writing to. Mark's gospel is written to Romans, not Roman Catholics, Romans, Roman people who grow up in Rome, who are familiar with Roman custom and Roman culture. So they're not necessarily familiar with other kinds of cultures. And so Mark is explaining some of the cultural imperatives of the Jewish people. It's just like you. Maybe some of you aren't familiar with Italian culture or Korean culture or Japanese culture or Spanish culture. Every 
this time of year, my wife consistently makes tamales. And before we were married, I said, why do you make tamales? She goes, it's a tradition. I go, I don't think so. I think it's because you want to have something to unwrap on Christmas morning. There's reasons. And it says, when they come from the marketplace in verse 4, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, like the washing of pitchers, like the washing of copper vessels and couches. You see, all of these are instruments that you would use to carry on normal life. But if for whatever reason those instruments came in contact with something that was unclean, those instruments became unclean. And so in verse 5 it says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And you have to understand something. This is an official question. From the official delegation that has officially come from Jerusalem. It's an official inquiry. Now I want you to understand something. Never mind that the disciples have healed the sick and the lame. Never mind that Jesus has healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the leper. Never mind that the authority of Jesus cast out demons, fed the multitudes. Never mind all of the miracles and ministry that has taken place in all of the chapters that we've already read. What is your problem again? Tell us about this hand-washing thing. Really? By the way, you, it's hard for us to understand, but I, I, I'm going to try and help you understand why this is so important to the observant Jew. There were many examples in Jewish history where Jews would rather die than become unclean. During the first war with the Jews, the Romans would capture the Jews, and we have official historical records of imprisoning Jews, and the Jews would take their water ration, and rather than take their water ration and survive, they would use the water to ritually cleanse their hands. They would rather starve to death or starve, starve of thirst. Many thousands of Jews were killed during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes when the population was forced to eat pork. Many of them chose to die. In the ancient world of the rabbis, they would say, the Bible is like water and the Mishnah is like wine and the Midrash is like spiced wine. Sort of like today when people will tell you, your church, what do you do at your church? Well, we read the Bible. Oh, the Bible. The Bible. You know, the Bible's really not where it's at. Here's where it's at. Revelation knowledge. Revelation from God. Really? Yeah. We're so mature, we've outgrown the Bible. Really? And this is part of the point that they were doing. The Mishnah was, by the way, a collection and a compilation of Jewish oral laws that were eventually compiled in the second century. Remember, in their way of thinking, that tradition was a fence around the law that kept you from breaking the law because purity was so important. But the, in their way of thinking... The Jews weren't simply called to be different from the Gentile nations. They were called to be separated from the Gentiles and separated to God. And in their zeal to separate from their Gentile neighbors and their traditions, and more importantly, um, th their way of thinking. Part of the, the point that you have to understand is that the scribes and Pharisees grew up in a culture that was inundated with Greek and pagan philosophies. And the religious leaders felt it was their duty to maintain a radical separateness from the culture and the ideas that threaten to obliterate Hebrew distinctiveness. Sort of like Christians who won't watch TV or listen to the radio because they think that if they listen to it, it will somehow defile them. And by the way, I guess there are circumstances where that's exactly what could happen. But it isn't touching the unbeliever that harms your heart it's embracing their wickedness and their sin and deciding to adopt it as a part of your own life 
By the way, did you grow up in a religious tradition where religious ceremonies and rituals were important? Did you always understand why? I grew up in a religious tradition where when you would come into the church, there was a bowl of water and that bowl of water was blessed by a priest. And you would stick your hand in the bowl of water and you would make the sign of the cross. Do you know why they do that? Do you have any idea whatsoever? In the ancient world of Rome, it was believed that dark forces governed the circumstances outside the walls of the church and that you were defiled and that this holy water would cleanse your mind and cleanse your heart and cleanse your service, that you were going from a place of darkness into a place of light, a place of pollution into a place of purity. No one ever told me that. I thought it was stuff you used to kill vampires with. The Jews were called to be separated from sin and separated to God. But what they wound up thinking was that any contact with the Gentile rendered them impure in their zeal to be separated from the Gentile neighbors. Their traditions became more and more weird. You were forbidden to look in a mirror. Do you know why you were forbidden to look in a mirror on the Sabbath day? If you looked into a mirror, you might find a gray hair. And if you found a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out. And if you plucked it out, you were conducting work because you were doing the work of a barber, unless you have no hair whatsoever. And by the way, you had to wash your hands before every meal and in between the courses, you had to wash your hand. And you don't just wash your hands. You have to wash it in the precise fashion. Certain animals were unclean. A woman after giving birth to a child was unclean. If you touched the dead, you were unclean. If you touched anything that had already been touched by the dead, you were unclean. If you touched a Gentile, you were really unclean. If you had an infectious disease like a boil or a rash or a sore, you were unclean. If mildew was on your clothes, you were unclean. And the moment you were considered ritually impure, the moment you were considered unclean, the moment you were considered defiled, you couldn't enter into the temple. You couldn't worship God. You couldn't offer the sacrifices. You couldn't participate in the community of worship. And so it doesn't matter how many blind eyes you've opened and deaf ears that you've unstopped. It doesn't matter how many lepers you've cleansed. It doesn't matter how many sick people you've made well. It doesn't matter how many hungry people you've made full. What matters is you are either impure before God or you are not pure before God. You are pure or you're not pure. And so for the religious Leader of the first century, ritual purity was numero uno on the list of things to do. And so Jesus confronts them. Look what it says in verse six. He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Make no mistake about it. You may not like the answer that Jesus gives, but I want you to reread verse six. He answered. This is his answer. Instead of going through the religious rigmarole of what the fear and superstition of tradition had brought about, he calls them hypocrites. And you know what a hypocrite is? A person who pretends to be something that they're not. As it is written. In their radical commitment to religious and ritual purity, did it make them in fact holy? Did Jesus go, wow, I couldn't help but notice that because of your religious and ritual purity, you, oh, I'm stunned at how holy you are. No. The religious leaders were outwardly pious. They were inwardly self-righteous. They were outwardly obnoxious. And Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And notice the exact words of Jesus. Isaiah was right when he prophesied. Literally, here's what it says. Isaiah said it beautifully when he spoke of you hypocrites. 
Albert Barnes says, hypocrisy is the concealment of some base principle under the pretense of religion, unquote. J.P. Newman says hypocrites are, quote, those who hate iniquity for a consideration. Or we might say, sure, I'll hate evil if the price is right. That's what he's talking about. Paul spoke of people who had a form of godliness but denied the power in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. People will sometimes profess to know God, but in their works deny Him, he writes again in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. And so he calls them hypocrites. He draws sharp contrast between what they say with their mouth and what's really going on inside of their hearts. And hence this whole issue. Do you care about what defiles your heart? Do you care about what delights the heart of God? The religious leaders were proud because they weren't like all other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. They fasted twice a week. They read from the Hebrew Bible. They gave tithes of all that they possessed, including uh, ministry to the poor. They were observant in religious obligations and devotions. But from God's perspective, they were infidels. Immoral, practical atheists. Their heart is far from me, he says. When he's quoting the scripture and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You would make a mistake if you simply said the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is talking about himself. Does that shock you and surprise you that he is the God of the Old Testament? He's the creator of heaven and earth and of everything that's on the, in this universe. He created all things, including you. Jesus Christ is Lord and God and creator. And he says, their heart is far from me. Religion is easy. Relationship is hard. But there's something about human beings. They're incurably religious. They're incurably religious. As a matter of fact, if you begin to talk about what it means to have a right relationship and fellowship with God, almost immediately they'll ask you, well, what are the rules? How often do I have to come to church? How often do I have to read my Bible? How much money do I have to give? Do I have to be baptized? What do I have to do? Can you imagine having a relationship like that? Can you imagine courting a man and the man says, look, in order for us to actually be like boyfriend and girlfriend, how many times do I have to call you a day? How many times do I have to talk to you? Tell me what's, how, many, how much gifts do I have to give? I know that the birthday thing, I have to give you a gift. But do I have to give you gifts other than on your birthday? I, I mean, I, I understand about Christmas and all of that stuff. Can you imagine? Is that the kind of guy you want to go out with? A guy who defines your relationship in terms of simply what is allowed and what is not allowed? Jesus calls them hypocrites in the eyes of the social spectators the religious leaders were pillars of religious propriety but the bible says that god is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth the disciples of jesus are accused of ritual impurity and the lord jesus accuses the religious leaders of heart impurity the disciples stand accused of breaking the traditions of the fathers and Thereby insulting the fathers and the religious leaders stand accused of personal impurity, insulting the heavenly father. Gosh. So who's dishonoring God? Really? Who's doing the most harm? In verse seven, it says, and in vain, they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here, Jesus goes on record. And it's a record that you should pay attention to. Traditions, human traditions must never, no, never, no, never substitute for the word of God. Are all traditions bad? No, some traditions are good. There's nothing Inherently evil with the tradition. 
unless the tradition causes you to dishonor God or disobey God. If the tradition causes you to violate your conscience, if the tradition causes you to stray from the word of God, if the tradition causes you to defy the Holy Spirit inside of you, then you have every reason to believe that something is wrong. In verse 8, it says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things that you, you do. In other words, Jesus is pointing out you don't get religious cooties. Sin isn't transmitted via something that you drink or that you eat out of. <laughs> this guy went to go visit his grandpa. And he noticed something filmy on the plate. And he was wondering if Grandpa was actually washing the plate. And he said, Grandpa, this plate looks a little bit dirty. And Grandpa said, it's as clean as cold water will get him. And so he goes, just, you know, pay no attention. Just eat your food. And so a little bit later, there was, you know, little bits of flecks of egg and flecks of leftover stuff and he goes grandpa i think that this plate is dirty and the grandpa said it's as clean as cold water can get him and so finally the guy just ate the food and then he was getting ready to go and all of a sudden the dog starts growling at him and he goes grandpa your dog won't let me go he goes cold water sit down Sometimes the dishes really are defiled. But that isn't what was happening here. You know, the Lord points out. In verse seven, he says, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. The Lord points out. All too well, you reject the commandment of God. We have obligations and responsibilities and duties to God. When he says you reject the commandment of God, he's not saying reject the Bible, reject the instructions in the Bible, reject, reject the commandments of the Bible. We have obligations, responsibilities, duties to God and to one another. We have obligations, duties, responsibilities to our family, to the poor, to the helpless. Jesus points out to the religious leaders that the whole purpose of the commandment of God, the revelation of God, the declaration of the law was to reveal his holiness and love and purity of a righteous and a perfect God. So the first four commandments of God were meant to help you understand what it meant to exercise friendship and fellowship with God. And the last six were to remind you of how you could have a relationship and friendship and fellowship with each other. The law reveals the perfection of God and our imperfection. The law reveals our utter inability to keep the command in our own resources and sinful circumstances. Part of the point that the religious leaders had missed was Judaism wasn't just some sort of religious construct in order to help people live some sort of a religious life. But it's so that they could experience forgiveness. And hope and a right relationship with God. No matter how socially or religiously pious they appeared on the outside, they were dishonest in the sight of God. No matter how outwardly religious and pious and sanctimonious they appeared on the outside, they were heretics on the inside. The scribes and the Pharisees prided themselves on the accuracy of their belief and their opinions because they were regarded as authorities when it came to religious conduct. But when it came to the literal experience Experiential encounter at the most basic level. Theirs was an obstruction to fellowship and worship. And that became the point. That somehow, if you can find yourself at church, and if somehow you can find yourself praying, and if and somehow open your Bible, that somehow coming to church, somehow praying, somehow... Reading your Bible is the religious obligation that you have that somehow ingratiates you to God. You've missed the whole point. Because that's not the point. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. These are harsh words. Verse 11, but you say, if a man says to his father or mother, "Mm, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift of God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect. Underline that verse 13. No effect. No effect. Kurontes. It means to make void. It means to make ineffective. It means to annul. It means to deprive it of authority. It means to inviscerate the power. It means to invalidate the command. It's as if God didn't really speak on the subject. So God says, honor your father and your mother. The word korban, by the way, meant dedicated to God or a gift of God. And so there was a religious game, a religious game that they would play with the religious leaders. In order to show their religious superiority, they would give enormous amounts to the temple. And then all of a sudden, mom and dad were in trouble. And they would go back and they would say, you know, I know that I pledged X amount of dollars, but my mom and dad are in trouble. And the religious leaders would say, you made a vow to God. You can't break your vow to God. When you have to choose between the lesser of two evils, what is the lesser evil? And here's what Jesus basically says. Jesus says, shame on you, you wicked people for pitting the Bible against itself. You judge what it says and you lose what it means. Shame on you. When you approach the scripture and you say, look at the scripture, it's filled with contradictions. No, the Bible isn't filled with contradictions. You are. Because guess what? The Bible comes down to two specific things. You will please God or you will please yourself. Will you actually try to undermine the scripture in order for you to continue in your sin and your rebellion and your disobedience against God? My advice? Don't do it. It's wrong. It's wrong for you to invalidate the word of God so that you can go forward in your wickedness. Jesus gives this example, but I want you to understand something. He's giving an example of how their traditions undermine the fifth commandment. But if Jesus were here, he could certainly give you how their traditions undermine the first commandment and the second commandment and the third commandment and the fourth commandment and the sixth commandment and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth. He's picking this one out in order to make a point. How tradition was used to pervert and distort what God clearly wanted. The religious leaders violated the divine principle of duty. It was the duty of children to honor their mom and their dad. The word honor doesn't mean sentimental sympathy or emotion without commitment. And clearly it means not just honoring them in your heart, but honoring them with your behavior. It means maintenance and care. And it's talked about in first Timothy chapter five, verse eight, the duty is followed by a strong and a fearful penalty. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, even for the new Testament believer that you're to honor your mom and your dad. And honor can't mean dishonor. The duty is followed by that strong and fearful penalty. Whoever curses father or mother, let him be put to death. So here's how Jesus juxtaposes it. There's honor on this side and there's curse on the other side. The word curse is pretty powerful. The point You were supported by your parents. You were protected by your parents. You were blessed by your parents. And you're thinking, you you didn't know my mom and dad. Because support, protection, and blessing isn't the first thing that comes to my mind. Well, guess what? They may not have supported you, and they may not have blessed you, and they may not have protected you. But you're Christians. You're different. Something's different. You see, you've been given life and love in the person of Jesus Christ. And the person of Jesus Christ has come inside of your heart. And the Holy Spirit has come inside of your heart. And you've been given all of the tools that you need in order to honor and obey the Lord. 
Korban meant something was given to God, and as such it became the property of God, and so they used it as a religious loophole, and it allowed them to ignore the needs of their parents and indulge themselves, and the religious leaders would use the excuse that they were unable to help their parents because they'd already dedicated the resources to God, and Jesus says that's wrong. William Barclay calls this passage well-nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Tradition may not be evil, but when the tradition causes you to ignore God, disobey God, disobey the character of Christ, disobey the character of God, something, something is wrong. Can you think of any traditions that might keep you from obeying God? Does the tradition that you have result in ignoring the poor and the needy over, I can't remember if it was five years ago or whatever, there was a storming, raging debate that went around the community because Christmas fell on Sunday morning. And there were people who were willing to close the church doors because Christmas was on Sunday morning. Well, we're not going to have a church service. Really? Seriously? You know what? Tradition can be good. There's, there's good traditions. There's good traditions of giving. There's good traditions of praying on your knees, of fasting. You can kneel and fasting isn't wrong and kneeling isn't wrong. But it's not the external thing that really matters. It's the internal thing. So is it possible that you're kneeling in reality, but not in your heart? Is it possible that you're standing in reality, but kneeling in your heart? The ritual washing and the ritual cleansing may have started off as a reminder of moral and spiritual separateness. But what it did is it became a wicked way. To distance themselves from God. If the religious leaders had asked a different question. If the religious leaders had asked Jesus. Am I unclean before God? Am I unfit for the presence of God? What do you suppose Jesus would say? Yeah. Because they were unclean and they were unfit for the presence of God. And the right answer would have, or the right question should have been, what do I need to do? You know, I thought that I could purify myself by some sort of external ritual cleansing. But no matter how many times I wash, no matter how many baptisms I experience, no matter how many times I go to church, no matter how many times I open my Bible, no matter how many times I pray, the wickedness and the filth and the disgusting circumstances of my heart remain the same. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can cleanse your heart? It's by identifying with the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is going to address the issue of the heart in verses 14 through 23. In the early church, there were few traditions and there was a great deal of freedom in the Holy Spirit. But the traditions began to grow in number. And some of the traditions over the years included styles of dress or modes of speech or even the use of certain kinds of religious language or the emphasis was on certain cultural or doctrinal distinctives. And so we sometimes confuse the way we dress as the acceptance or the rejection by God. And clearly the Bible does talk about modesty and the Bible does talk about men looking like men and the Bible does talk about women looking like women. It's not talking about cultural or social faux pas. Somebody came up to me and said, they're not cowboy boots, they're Western boots. And you don't wear cuffs with, cow- with Western boots. I've committed a, a huge faux pas. Can you imagine someone saying to you, that blouse doesn't go with that skirt. And look at that makeup. Not only am I offended, I think God himself is offended. Really? Do the social and cultural things offend God? 
You know, the story is told of a Bible teacher in 1928 who was giving a series of lectures. And after the lecture, a group of older women came up to the pastor to complain of certain young ladies in the congregation who weren't wearing stockings. The woman asked if the pastor wouldn't mind rebuking these young ladies for the impropriety of not wearing stockings. And the pastor said, did you know that Jesus' mother didn't wear stockings? Why? Why no? We didn't know that at all. Well, as a matter of fact, do you know where stockings originated? No. Well, they originated in the 15th century in Italy. That's where Italian prostitutes advertising their wares began to wear stockings. But then a European noblewoman scandalized the continent by wearing stockings and pretty soon it became a fashion statement. It was a badge of honor so that by the time Queen Victoria began wearing the stockings, it epitomized modesty and decency and propriety. So how does hypocrisy and hypocrites manifest themselves among us? Well, the hypocrite will find worship, will find fault with the worship of true believers. That's exactly what's happened in our passage. That's exactly what's happened. Let's let's praise the Lord. You didn't wash your hands first. You can't praise the Lord. What are you talking about? The religious leaders had made the journey from Jerusalem to the Galilee to criticize Jesus and his disciples, just like some people will make the journey here. You didn't pray enough. He didn't honor the scripture enough. And look at this place. I know some of you are counting the number of points on the stars, wondering if it's a satanic symbol. Some people will make a long and a difficult journey just to find out what's wrong with you and what's wrong with your church. But they don't seem to be too concerned about your heart. Hypocrites look for personal gain and they disregard the interest of others. They're full of pride instead of pity. Imagine a kid. He's riding his bicycle right in front of the church. He picks up a brick. He throws it through the window. And now the window is broken. And so we take up a special offering to replace the window. But does anybody care about the kid whose heart is broken, who broke the window to begin with? Will you use your resources to go and visit him at the juvenile detention center? Will you be willing to talk to him about Jesus? Hypocrites have a deep preoccupation with the veneer of religion and the externals of religion. And somehow they manage to miss the point of Christianity. They manage to miss the point of Jesus. They manage to miss the point about what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. Hypocrites will pay more attention to the traditions of men than to the infallible and inerrant and lovely and beautiful word of God. But guess what? There's hope for the hypocrite. Jesus quoted Isaiah. So will I. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow, though they be red like Santa's robe. That's not in the Bible. You're right. It says crimson. But I think it means red. They shall be as wool. There's hope. God says, come, let's reason together. I'm willing to forgive your sin on the basis of what Jesus has done. We're going to end with a little quiz. You don't have to tell me the results and you don't have to shout out loud. But answer yes or no to each of these questions. God's love depends on what I do. Number two. Meeting the expectations of others, especially those in my congregation or positions of authority, that's important. Number three, moral and ethical questions are usually black and white, and they're only made into fuzzy shades of gray by hand-reading, ringing social liberal types. Number four, I try hard to obey God, and it irritates me that other people think that they can get away with God, what God doesn't let me get away with. Number five, 
I fall short because I don't have enough faith. I haven't prayed long enough. I haven't read my Bible long enough. I guess I just need to be a better person. Number six. God is predisposed to be angry with me because I'm a sinner. And my main goal in life is to gain God's favor by doing things that will impress him. Number seven. My sense of spiritual well-being is linked to a Christian leader or membership in my church rather than a personal relationship with the Lord. Number eight. I tell my children not to do something in church or around other Christian families that I would never allow in my own home or that I would, would allow in my own home. Number nine. I believe my church is God's true church and that most other Christians may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Number 10, the exterior choices that a person makes in what they wear, their hairstyle, their piercings, their tattoos, is a clear indication of that person's character. Number 11, I sometimes worry that people might take advantage of grace if it's preached too much. It might make people think that they can do whatever they want. Number 12. After being around Christians for a long time, I feel drained. Because I have to put up this false front. Number 13. When I miss a service or activity at the church, I pretty much feel guilty. Number 14. I'll probably go to heaven, even though I'm far from perfect, because, well, I've tried to be a good person. And, you know, God will take that into account. How'd you do? What'd you think? You're chosen, adopted, and accepted in Jesus. There's nothing else you can do. His love, His grace, His mercy, His sacrifice... Paul says you're complete in him. Complete can't mean incomplete. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there's a lot more to say. But we're going to have to keep that for next week. But Lord, we pray that you will help our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would ask the most important question. What is it that defiles my heart? What is it that delights my Lord's heart. What is it that makes me impure? And what is it that causes me to rejoice and be purified in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the love of Jesus, in the grace of Jesus, in the mercy of Jesus? Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we will not just reluctantly, but we will refuse to replace religion with what it means to have a real friendship and a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.